when I hear this in the, in the mouth of my seven-year-old now, when she says she can't do something yet, I just smile because I can't play piano is so different from I can't play piano yet. Just the inclusion of that word at the end opens up the possibility for anything to happen. It opens up the possibilities for us to achieve anything aspirational. I haven't climbed a mountain yet. I haven't run a marathon yet. And it just absolutely opens up the world to us. So I think the more we can think about statements that end with yet, the better. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG, a show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Mike Gamson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you. So I always start these things the same way. In fact, I've never started one a different way. However, I feel like you'll do a more concise and better job of telling me your bio than I could do. So why don't we just start by maybe giving you the microphone Kicking it off after you got your degree in comparative religion and fine arts, and I know this is going to take a minute or two, but I almost skipped this because I feel like your background is so well known that I didn't want to be repetitive to the audience that may have heard you, but I suspect most of the audience has never heard of you. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to let you kick this thing off after Amherst College. Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds great. And I love the departure from your standards. I mean, I'm a I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller, so I don't know what's in store for me now. All right, so my professional bio. I'm assuming you want to skip all the personal stuff, so I'm going to give you my, my professional bio. I want you to start with Viva Burrito. Yes, okay. Viva Burritos. Viva Burritos. So Viva Burritos was perhaps the best time ever in a box. So I was just graduating from college with a job that I got at Goldman Sachs, and as you mentioned as a fine arts and comparative religion major, working at a New York-based investment bank was not what I had originally intended. And yet, like many grads, I got sucked up into the hiring machine on campus and got excited to go to what sounded like a really fancy and exciting opportunity. But thankfully, a good friend of mine wrote me a letter that really changed my path and basically called me out as a hypocrite because I had been railing against the man for many years and about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then I had accepted a job to work really inside the, one of the most you know, significant banks in the world. And so instead, I called Goldman and said, hey, I'm not coming. I waited tables at a local concert venue called Ravinia in the Chicago area for the summer, saved a bunch of money. And then my, my good friend Jim and I got on a plane and took a one-way ticket down to Argentina with an aspiration to make it up to Costa Rica and one day learn how to surf. That took us about three months to get there. And I had told Jim that when we get to Costa Rica, don't worry, if we run out of money, we'll be able to find a job teaching English, no problem. He believed me. I'm not sure which one of us was more at fault for that. But uh, we did not find a job. And instead, when we had about 1,200 bucks left between the two of us, we were faced with the prospect of coming home 
or figuring out a way to perpetuate our amazing existence there, we chose the latter and we decided to open a business in Costa Rica. And that, it turned out, was pretty straightforward. As long as you hired one Costa Rican at the time in 1996, you could very easily stay in Costa Rica. So we opened a little restaurant that did well enough that we called some of our close friends to come join us in Costa Rica. They did. And so we opened a little surf shop and a youth hostel. And I say little between all these things because if uh, any of my friends are listening right now who have been there, they know this was uh, not fancy. And that's an understatement. But these were, it was a legit little restaurant. And we sold a bunch of surfboards. And if you wanted to stay in a very inexpensive and not that nice hostel, we were your place. Mm-hmm. So that was Viva Burritos. We did that for a year or so. And then we sold it to some Americans and came on home. You came back home. And what happened? So I came back home about a year, year and a half after graduating from college, not knowing what I wanted to do with myself again. And so this time I did, in fact, take a job at a bank in Chicago, which was really helpful because... For someone coming out of a liberal arts background, I knew what I loved to study, but I didn't know what that could turn into vocationally. Mm. So working inside of a bank actually was very useful for me to both understand a little bit of finance, really understand how to use some of the tools of professional life at the time. You know, the Microsoft suite was a big deal for me to learn how to use and, you know, get into an Excel spreadsheet. But by far, the most important part of that experience was I met my wife, Elise, there, Mm -hmm. who was an accountant at the time. And... I was living with a guy, one of my closest friends, who was getting his computer science master's in Chicago, and this was now 1998, and he said, why are we living in Chicago when the dot-com madness is happening in Bay Area? We've got to get out there. So we did what many young people do and did, which is we got a U-Haul, we drove out west, and we, we started a life in San Francisco. And so for the next eight years, I had the great fortune of working at a wonderful enterprise software company called Advent Software, where I found my first impactful mentors, And I really learned a little bit about how to show up in a technology company and to operate first as a salesperson, then a sales manager, and then for the next five years as a product manager and product marketer. But much more importantly, I really began to get in touch with who are the leaders who I admire most? How do they operate? What do they think about? What do they care about? And how can I work on my own skills so that some version of what I want to become can be influenced by what what I saw in them? And I really found out what I wanted to be as a leader. I I discovered that during those years in San Francisco, aside from having an amazing time being a 20-something in San Francisco in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was a lot of fun. Good time to be in San Francisco. Good times. Okay, met Dan Nye at Advent. Dan goes on to become the CEO of LinkedIn, correct? Yeah, Advent was full of great leaders. I mean, Steve Luzik, really, he's the person who hired me. He taught me how to show up for work every day and get my job done. Gave me some great leadership lessons. Pete Hess, who went on to be the, the CEO of Advent, he did a great job of teaching me just amazing how to put your shoulder into it and just really drive for something aspirational. And Dan, to your point, you know, Dan really changed my life. And he, he is not only the person who taught me so much about you know, values as a platform for your own personal leadership, but certainly from an opportunity perspective, when he went on to be the CEO of LinkedIn, taking over from Reed Hoffman prior to Jeff getting there, Dan brought me there. And that was absolutely the big break that I had in my career that, that changed a lot for me. I have so many questions. So when you and I went for a walk in your neighborhood, really nice neighborhood, and it was a perfect day in Chicago, as it tends to be in whenever that was, June or July. Let's be I, clear. Hold on a second. It's perfect in Chicago almost every day of the year. I mean, Chicago, <laughs> like the loveliest weather. Today, it's gorgeous outside right now. 68 oh, and sunny. It's perfect. Man. I don't know if you remember this, but I told you, I remember 
being in the Uber on the way to see you, and I was pretty nervous because I've heard your name for probably seven or eight years now. And the reason I originally heard your name was because my girlfriend at the time, when we graduated college, her first job was at LinkedIn. And her first week, you had a sales kickoff or an orientation, something where you were on stage with a microphone and you were talking about why you do what you do, why LinkedIn does what LinkedIn does. And she came home that night and I was jealous. I was like, Mike Gamson, he's so amazing. This company is so inspiring. And I was like, whatever, this guy, whatever, there's no way, you know? And then as I got to know more about you, I started learning about you and then I was gonna go meet you. And so this is fast forward seven years later and I'm reading about you and I'm like, huh, his first job was at Subway. My first job was at Subway. He studied abroad in Spain and lived in Costa Rica. I studied abroad in Spain and lived in Costa Rica. He started a company with his friend from Spain after college. I started a company with my friend from Spain after college. And then he lives in Chicago, which is where I lived, and then moved back to San Francisco, which is where I just moved back to. So anyway, I don't believe in coincidences. It was uh, very, very odd going through that. We're basically twins. I mean, first of all, you're, you're way over kind, and I'm shaking my head in... I don't know, embarrassment over, you're being overly kind. You know, LinkedIn is an extraordinary platform that anyone standing upon it is made to look special. And I am so grateful to have been on the stage when your girlfriend was talking about that moment and for what the platform of LinkedIn provided for so many of us. This is me just wanting to be more like you. You know, this is just me putting myself <laughs> kind of in a similar bracket here. So you get to LinkedIn. So at first, Dan tries to recruit you. And what happens? Yeah. So I had just moved back to Chicago. Uh, my wife, Elise, and I decided to have our kids and raise our family in the Chicago area. So two of my close friends from college and I had started a startup. We were living in Evanston. Dan was my advisor. And so when he called and said, hey, he's taking over as CEO of this company that I had not really heard of yet, I was not inclined to move back to California as he suggested I should and get the band back together as he was suggesting. And so I, I said no. Thankfully. He called back a few months later, made a stronger case for why I would be not smart. He used stronger language, but why I'd be not smart to come and check out this company. And so I did, and I met Reed, and I heard what Dan had to say and a number of the early folks at LinkedIn, and I was really blown away by the possibilities of what that company could become, and I really, really desired to be part of it. But I wasn't interested in moving back to California, and so my opportunity to join the executive team was predicated on being in California. Dan said, you don't have to move, but then you need to come on as an individual contributor if you want to stay in Chicago. So I thought about it and decided what my priorities were, were really being in Chicago and raising my family there. So Elise and I made a you know, family decision that I was going to stay in Chicago. I came on as an individual contributor. My first job description being essentially figure out something to do for money in the company as the consumer platform had really started to take off, but monetization was still a very new thing at the company at the time. And I spent my first year, year and a half there trying to get some new business off the ground. And most of the ideas that I had were lousy. We didn't pursue them. Really, other people's ideas were the ones that we ended up mm. running with. And I was very fortunate to be able to find some people who wanted to join us who really amplified our pursuit. And you, you've met some of them. I mean, this is when I met Dan Shapiro, who I know mm -hmm. you know well, and Dan was an early, early hire there. And Dan, Dan took one of the ideas that we had about a research network business. And he turned it into something that was, was a real business. And he allowed me to pursue 
other things inside the company, one of which was moving over into what became really the, the flagship part of the commercial model and, and what we now call the, the talent solutions business there. I'm starting to think I should have my own LinkedIn badge considering how many uh, LinkedIn folks I've both had on the show and gotten to know. It's, it's really been fun and a privilege. How big was the company when you were getting recruited there or when you started? I think around 60 people and just over 100 respectively. So that, that was kind of the duration of the conversation. And how much revenue? Do you remember? Sob 10? I think when I started, yeah, just about 10. I think maybe we did 12 that year after I started, yep. And what would your job have been had you decided to become an executive and move to the Bay Area, like a VP of sales? I don't know. It's a great question because I wasn't qualified for anything. Yeah. And so, you know, it's even funny to think about it in retrospect and that this is the kind of thing where I guess why you join startups because sometimes you can get opportunities based on your potential versus just what you've proven that you've done elsewhere. I have no idea because I certainly wasn't qualified to be a sales leader, albeit that's what I ended up doing there a year later, no more qualified. So maybe sales, but yeah. really I had thought about myself as a, as a product marketer or as a product manager at the time. And I was certainly not qualified enough to be a VP at LinkedIn in either of those areas. And how old were you? I was 30 ish. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes at 30 ish. I am 30 ish. Yeah. You fall in love with this company, LinkedIn. And your old boss who taught you so much is now the CEO of this company that you're yeah. falling in love with. Yeah. It's in the Bay Area, which is, you know, not a bad place to live. It's where the hub of all things innovation are. And you were just there, right? You and Elisa's, what did that conversation go like? How did you figure out your priorities at the time? Because I know that you're very ambitious. You're young in your career. You wanted to make a mark. And there's no way that I... I don't know if I would have been able to say that I, I would be an individual contributor, maybe out of pride or ego. How'd that thought process work for you? I think it's one of those things where in hindsight, where LinkedIn has been able to accomplish so much on a global scale, it looks like it would have been this really like kind of like crushing set of decisions. At the time, it was a startup with fierce competitors with not at all a preordained path to success. And we looked at it as marginally better than the startup that we had just founded that I thought was doing great. And it didn't pay very well. It didn't pay enough for us to pay for our mortgage. And, and actually, specifically, my total compensation at LinkedIn when I started, cash compensation, was materially below what I've been making for the last many years. And so it cost us about 2000 bucks a month to stay there meaning we had to dip into our savings 2000 bucks a month. And I remember the conversation with Elise, your question was, let's give it 12 months. This is going to be a $24,000 investment in the possibilities of what might come from this company. And I bet in a year, we'll know if this is going to be something that flames out or if there's a real path here. And so we actually had, it was a, both a financial and you know, kind of a risk management family decision about it. Because it also meant I had to fly back and forth to California all the time. I was the only faraway person. We had a six-week-old, our first child, when I started there. So it wasn't easy and it was, it was very dislocating and it didn't pay a lot and it wasn't obvious that it was going to be a big success. So it felt like a reasonable risk to take it that part of your life. And that was 2007-ish, right? Yeah. And so putting myself in your shoes again, fast forward a year from that point, Dan is no longer the CEO, correct? Yep. There's a reason for that. The 
company wasn't performing in the way that it wanted to. LinkedIn was having generally, my understanding is like kind of a tough patch. Like that was a rough part of the company, if I'm not mistaken. After a year, were you like, oh yeah, yep, I was right. See, honey, <laughs> like we did it. Yeah, so I would say a few things. My guess is there's a lot of authors of the history of those moments. And I'm sure everyone with different perspectives remembers those years through slightly different lenses. But from mine, Reed always had an incredibly clear vision for what he wanted to accomplish with LinkedIn, what he thought was possible. And to an extraordinary extent, I think he was dead on right. He brought on Dan to do a handful of things, and I wasn't privy to all those conversations, of course. And I think Dan did a number of things to make the company ready for the enterprise. And LinkedIn was still very much trying to figure out its identity as it's definitely a consumer company, but it has this enterprise monetization possibility. What does that mean for us as a company? And at the time, in 2007, at least from my perspective, internet companies really bifurcated into those who were consumer and those technology companies that were enterprise. So being both didn't seem like an option. And so I think a number of the challenges at the company at the time were related to that. Some were core leadership challenges, some were product strategy challenges, there was a number of challenges. And it was also a company just moving from tribe one to tribe two. The incredible founders and the early folks at LinkedIn who built the foundations, some of them loved the moments of being just a few dozen people and some wanted to go on further. And so there was a, there was a number of transitions, but it, it was tricky. The technology was tricky at the time. The culture was tricky. So when Jeff Wiener got there, he really came into a situation that had extraordinary potential and, and some real momentum but absolutely needed a deep dose of what he was bringing, which was, you know, I think extraordinary focus on compassionate management, on another version of leadership that he had such clarity on, the importance of bringing clarity on doing fewer things, so many kind of Jeff lessons. And as a person who was so loyal to Dan and so in debt to Dan for bringing me there, when Jeff arrived, I felt before I met him, like he was the person who displaced my friend. And I was living far away. The company was tricky to work for at the time. My very close friend was no longer going to be CEO. New guy was coming in. I did not feel well set up to either really like Jeff or have him choose me. Mm -hmm. And so when I flew there, I told Elise, I'm like, this is probably my quit or get fired flight to California. You know, I'm probably going to get there and either quit or get fired. That was my energy meeting him. And so when I went to the office that morning and Jeff was sitting in the office that I thought about was Dan's office, Jeff said, hello, and how you doing? And then really the next question that he asked me was what kind of, he said a few you know, nice pleasantries in kind of Jeff style. And then he said, Mike, what kind of leader do you aspire to be? And I was working on empathy at the time. I spent some real time thinking about it. And I said, an empathetic leader. And he said, why empathy and not compassion? That took me a little bit aback because I certainly knew both words, but not deeply enough to debate them and the nuance between them. I don't think I could have articulated effectively. So Jeff and I ended up having this really meaningful conversation about the difference between empathy and compassion. He told me this parable from the Dalai Lama about compassion that changed how I wanted to manage and lead. And in those moments, I realized I had just with Forrest Gump-like luck, found myself sitting across from another extraordinary leader who could be an amazing mentor to me if, if I could convince him not to fire me because I was the old guy's right hand who was far away. Mm -hmm. And so that started an incredible relationship with Jeff 
is one of my closest friends today. He was an absolutely game-changing mentor and coach to me through my years evolving as a leader at LinkedIn. He expanded my scope of role several times and made significant investments in me. He shared with me the intimate details of life as a CEO, and he allowed me to explore through his experiences the learnings and the the decisions that he made in that role. And we would actually, in the early years of us working together, we would break up our one-on-ones and I would carve out a handful of usually the first half or three quarters of the one-on-one focused on the core operating of the company, normal one-on-one stuff. And then I would take the back end of the one-on-one to just ask him a number of questions about how he operated as a CEO. And I was just trying to catalog all of his thinking and his experiences in the same way that I did with Dan and with others with really rabid curiosity about what is that job like? What are you doing? How are you doing it? Why are you thinking that? I heard you say this thing. Did you mean that thing? And just, he was just amazing as a teacher and as a coach. Okay. So then you started a hundred people. Jeff Weiner comes into the picture. You have this great run. The company ends up being 14,000 ish people. By the time you leave 11 and a half years later, 5,000 of those are on your team. We're not going to have enough time for anywhere near all the things that I want to get to, but I had the opportunity to crowdsource many questions from many folks who have worked for you, many of whom have been on the show. And Dan asked one, Shapiro, that I was excited to dig into. He said, ask Mike about how he built such conviction being a values-based leader and stuck to making hard cultural calls even when the pressure was on. My question is, what is he talking about? When was the pressure on? And what does that pressure feel like? Are there any shining beacons of examples? <laughs> I love how you can like dig into all the people in my life, especially, you know, and Dan Shapiro, for those of you who don't know him, Dan Shapiro is a very, very special person, just gifted with an extraordinary mind and heart. And he is leading at LinkedIn in a way today that, frankly, I would say it would disrespect him to say that I'm how proud I am of what impact he's making because that creates separation between us. I told Dan on many occasions, that one day I know I'm gonna end up working for him and I still think that's true today. He's extraordinary. I just thank him so much for all the work that he did that frankly, I got a lot of credit for in our organization. So what's he talking about? He's probably talking about at least the first time this came up, not the only time, but the first time it came up, I had recently moved into a sales leadership role at LinkedIn. I was feeling not real firm in my footing. It was on the team. Jeff was still new to the company. We had other new executives that I was still learning my way with. And I was new to sales leadership. I hadn't really done sales leadership very much before. And I had just made my first big sales hire, my first director. And making the numbers was important at sales. And this person was making the number. But to make a much longer story shorter, the way this person was making their number required a number of trespasses against what I thought were appropriate ways to act and treat others. And so after 11 weeks, I terminated that relationship and ended up with an empty seat there. And so the tricky part about that and why it really became something that we talked about on our team as an example of what I wanted others to do is that we were not going to allow trespasses on our values to be an excuse for delivery of results. And it became something that we talked about because results should be the outflow of doing everything else correctly. They are not the thing in and of themselves. The thing of himself is how we act, why we act the way we do, and results flow from that. And so that became a kind of a thing in the early days there. Was there contention with 
your leadership team who were also trying to hit a number or was it your call? With that particular case, that was my call because the way that LinkedIn functioned, where really the company was in the early days, most of the company that was trying to do everything right for the consumer side of the business. And then the part of the company that was focused on monetization was quite separate at the time. And so it afforded me a lot of autonomy to do what both I felt was right and what my direct reports and I felt were right. Any other times that you think of when the pressure was on, you can take pressure however you want, but I like the framing of values because I think that's ultimately, that's a real good pressure test, if you will. Any other times that stand out to you? To be honest, there are many, but I think the pressure being on, however, was something that I really only felt before I felt like I belonged in the seat that I was in. Because what I think LinkedIn does a wonderful job of always is making it clear to everyone what is expected of them. And when I understood what was expected of me and I felt like I'm going to plant my two feet on this area and I'm going to say this is what's important to me, I made it really clear with all my stakeholders up, down and across about how I want to operate. From that point forward, I didn't really feel under pressure per se with any type of values decision because it was so clear. It was so clear about how values were going to be something that was so important to LinkedIn. I remember, you know, learning from Jeff as an example. One of the very first things that we collaborated on when he came into the company was what, what at the time felt like a really big deal. We were negotiating this very kind of bespoke big deal with a business development partner. And I had kind of grown up thinking that the right angle in approaching a deal was like genuinely, how do I make this the best deal I possibly can for our company? And Jeff coached me in that moment to give back more to the counterparty to make certain, extra certain, that it was a really good deal for them. Because when it was a really good deal for them over time, then it's a really good deal for us. And he brought this longer arc thought to it and really just literally paused me in the execution of the deal to both teach me this thing and to ensure that I was going to operate in that way, because that's the way you build long-term value is by really going out of your way for the stakeholders around you to make sure it's good for them. And so that kind of, what at the time I viewed as selfless deal-making, and now I really understand is just kind of the compassion and understanding of how to do business more broadly, it was very educational and it underscored for me that we were going to be an organization that really lived our values. LB Harvey, who's now the CRO front, she told an incredible story on her episode where when she was leaving LinkedIn, you told her that you wanted to make sure that her next job was a great one and that you wanted to talk to the employer. Is that right? And if so, what were you asking on her behalf? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it's directionally correct. I would say my recollection of it was my words were, I want to make certain that the role she was taking in the company were worthy of her mm. and were worthy of her because I thought the world of her and really felt like she had incredible potential. And I want to make sure if you're going to leave a great place where people care about you and you have great career trajectory, you may be damn sure that you're going somewhere that's going to be worthy of you. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And so, yeah, I interviewed the CEO and I really made sure that what he was doing and planning for her was going to be worthy of her, that he was going to be aware of her incredible strengths, that he was going to be tolerant of the places that she was still learning, and that he was committing to 
creating the fabric of a company that I knew that she could thrive in because I wanted to come back to her and give her an honest recommendation of, yep, I think that's going to be an amazing opportunity for you or, or not so much. That is absolutely incredible. All right. So a big part of what we want to talk about here today and your LinkedIn thing, I could actually go for hours, but a lot of my past guests have said, Jubin, we want to know what it takes to make the jump from CRO to CEO. And I have a few of these conversations. You were one of the first emails that I sent when I started learning more about this. I think it actually started from Ryan Longfield, maybe at Gong. Anyway, why don't we use relativity as the launching point? Let's talk about relativity for a little bit and then your role there. And then we can get into some questions that I have. Is that a fair framing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Relativity is, it's an amazing company founded by a really extraordinary founder named Andrew Seja, who not only founded the company almost 20 years ago, but ran it as a CEO for all of that time up until just about two and a half years ago. And Andrew wrote the first code. He didn't raise any outside money and he built an extraordinary business in the legal tech space, which today has, has blossomed into a 1400 person unstructured data management company. It's really fueled by AI that creates value for our customers in, in legal tech, in compliance, in most of the countries around the world and is used by more than 13,000 organizations. And so I met Andrew about four or five years ago, and it was at a time where I was, I was still very much deeply in LinkedIn, but I had begun to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And when I was at LinkedIn and when I was able to see the incredible impact that tech companies have on their communities, the opportunities that accrue to those folks who are fortunate enough to get jobs in great tech companies, and all the while living in Chicago and traveling around the world to see other cities that aren't like the coasts in the U.S., that don't necessarily have great tech outcomes. And I really decided in that time that what I wanted to do for the rest of my professional life was to work on the problem of helping ecosystems like Chicago develop successful, virtuous cycles of success in tech companies where we can employ more and more people from across the community not necessarily just people who always find their way to tech, but all kinds of people. And we can have great outcomes and we can recycle those financial resources back into the community, that experience back into the community and really build a great tech ecosystem. So as part of that, I spent a lot of time looking around Chicago, trying to meet all the entrepreneurs that I could. I made a number of investments in small companies, joined a number of boards. And Andrew and I got together for a few reasons. And I was really blown away by what I thought about was this kind of best kept secret in Chicago, this incredible company. It was a secret because it really hadn't raised a lot of money. And oftentimes the machine of PR and venture go hand in hand. And Andrew's also an incredibly humble person, never sought the spotlight, never wanted unicorn to be attached to his company, you know, et cetera, despite it absolutely being that and what he had built. And so he had this incredible low-key kind of attitude, but with intensity and intelligence and a client-centrism that I hadn't encountered before. And so I joined Andrew's board, and shortly thereafter, we went for a walk in the city one night in Chicago on a beautiful summer night. It was kind of like a three-hour date where we were really getting to know each other. Next day, he texted me and he said, hey, I got a big idea for you. And then I said, gosh, what's, what's the big idea? I called him and he said, how about you come and you run this company? And I was like, oh my gosh, that's overwhelming. I'm so grateful. Thank you. It's so flattering. But 
I've got some time left where I am. I'm loving LinkedIn still, and I had promised my family we were going to do something big together in a sabbatical between whatever I did after LinkedIn and next. And so it took a while for Andrew and I to figure out what we wanted to do. But longer story short, we made kind of a secret agreement that I was going to succeed him in about a year and a half. And so I joined his board with that in mind. And I had the incredible opportunity of getting to know the company and Andrew and I beginning to build a relationship from the spot of a board member knowing that I was going to be joining shortly as a CEO. And this concept of leveraging tech companies to build ecosystems within the communities that, that those companies exist in, is this something like, use LinkedIn as an example, or most tech companies in the Bay Area. There's this incredible employer that then fuels this hub of innovation that then drives great employees to that place. They then develop and learn new skills which then they can go transfer to new companies, whether they're starting those companies or whether they're joining those companies as the next CRO or VP of engineering. That's exactly right. And you know what people don't realize generally, unless you work in tech, is that about 75% of the jobs in tech companies aren't technical. And so many people who are outside the world of tech feel that a job inside of a tech company may be out of their reach because they've only worked in manufacturing or in a services industry or in consumer packaged goods or what have you. But very few tech companies have more than 25% of their people in actual technical roles. And so I think that the possibility for a more inclusively built tech community can happen when there's consciousness brought to it. And when you and I were on our walk, I asked you this question, but I'd love for you to, to repeat the answer. I said, Mike, why don't you just invest? You know, you invested in Cameo, a Chicago-based company. Why don't you just start a venture fund and you can fuel the next era of companies and innovation? Why didn't you take that route? Why did you go this route? Yeah, <laughs> good question. Uh, some days I ask myself that question on the hard days. <laughs> no, I think because it's an and, not an or. I want to work for a long time. I love working. I am so intellectually engaged with what I do. And I'm so in love with the people development parts of what I do. And I've been so entranced by all this new things that, I've, that I need to learn in this job because I'm only two plus years into my first job as a CEO. I am not yet really good at this. I'm really learning still. And I love being in the part of any job move where I'm in a deep learning curve. And I am learning deeply from my colleagues and customers and from Seja all the time. It's so gratifying for me to be able to do that, that kind of deep learning. And life is long, I hope. You know, so maybe there's some time in the future where I invest more in a more focused, deliberate, and full-time way. But being an operator is a ton of fun and it takes a ton of energy. And so, you know, I don't know if I have five, 10, or 20 years of that kind of energy left, but it's not 40. But I've got 40 years of some kind of energy left. So maybe, you know, maybe a little bit later in life, there is more full-time investing. For now, it's just something I do to try to help entrepreneurs more than something that I'm looking to make into a world-class investing company. You mentioned earlier that you used to pick Jeff's brain on the intimate details of life as a CEO. What questions do you wish you asked him? Mm. Well, I, I still call him. <laughs> so Jeff is actually a formal advisor to me at Relativity. So I'm being a very, very dear friend. He's also, at this point in life, like an extraordinarily experienced CEO. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we first met, 
it, he was a first time CEO. He was just learning too. Yeah. And so I was frankly as interested in those learning moments as I now am in his more scaled CEO mm-hmm. insights. And sometimes that's about you know the things that that I learned from him about watching him in emergency situations where he is just you know amazing to talent issues to creating clarity to synthesizing complex things into you know one pagers etc. And actually when Andrew and I made the decision for me to succeed him, one of the things that we committed to each other was recognizing that CEO transitions for founder-led companies are non-trivial and they often fail. We committed to each other to make new mistakes. Let's go be a student of history and figure out where other people like us have run into problems in the past. Let's go learn those lessons and then let's go figure out ways to make new mistakes. And so we actually got on a plane, we went out west and we, we interviewed Jeff together. We interviewed Reed together. And we interviewed other folks together so that both he and I, as two new partners figuring out how to make this really work, could learn from the you know, generous explanation of other people who had been through there and now had the benefit of years of hindsight so that we wouldn't have to make those same mistakes. And as an example, one of the things that Reed did for Jeff that was so thoughtful was when Jeff joined, Reed scheduled a long trip where he was just away from the office. And maybe it was six or eight weeks. I don't remember exactly, but it was a real chunk of time. And that allowed the company to reorient to Jeff as the leader. And so when I joined Relativity, Andrew graciously did the same. He took his first extended break from the company ever. And he gave me an opportunity to dig in with the team and really have everyone recalibrate and recognize that it's not Andrew for this role anymore. Andrew's the executive chairman and that Mike's in this new job. Jeff wasn't a revenue leader. Like, I think he came from Yahoo, right? Like, he wasn't necessarily the CRO per se. Where did you think that the muscles that you have built on that side of the house were particularly useful? Where were areas where when you got in the job, it was really obvious to you that there were some new things that you needed to learn, some new skills? And, and what were those? Where did some come top of mind for you? Yeah, so first, there's many more shortcomings where I am deficient in skills than there were things where I was perfectly suited for. You know, relativity is an incredibly rich technical culture. I mentioned earlier, in most tech companies, not more than 25% of your people are in technical organizations. For us, it's more like 40% of our people. So we're a highly technical company with a highly technical product where many of the most important moves that we have to make over the next several years are technical in nature. And so that's like one layer where I was deficiently ignorant. Another layer was the depth of domain in the industry of legal tech and compliance. This is an industry where most people spend their whole life in the industry, and I was a newcomer. So I really needed to combat those areas of ignorance with some scaffolding. And I was very fortunate that uh, my good friend and longtime engineering partner, Kevin Scott, who's now the CTO of Microsoft, he agreed to come on as a board member for us at Relativity. And so he's someone who I could call, especially in those early days where I was figuring things out for some help. And now he's a, you know, he's a fantastic board member. We're amazingly lucky to have him there. But Andrew really coached me on the industry and how our products work. And then you know, my executive team are pretty incredible at Relativity. And I frequently, frequently rely on them to teach me about where I was deficient in my understanding. Now, the things that 
I either learn from Jeff or from Dan or Steve or other mentors or develop them on my own that are applicable in this. Absolutely communication, core leadership, the work process of just being efficient and getting things done. And interestingly, you know, no one plans for a pandemic, but my last eight or nine years at LinkedIn, when we went to many offices around the world and I was the far away person, I lived on video for 10 years. And so the shift into remote work that we've all experienced globally in the last year and a half, I felt very well prepared for everything from leading all hands remotely to engaging in small formats or large formats or one-on-ones. I felt like I'd been training for this for a long time and so felt appropriately prepared to handle a number of those curveballs that the world threw to us. Any stumbles where, I don't know, I guess two years in, you get going, something you didn't see, something that just tripped you up. I don't know, anything that you kind of get a knot in your stomach thinking like, oh man, this is not. Yes, I'm doing the best I can, but I tell you for sure all the time, there are talent moves that I didn't navigate effectively, sometimes not recognizing that the culture of the company that I was joining, which again, is almost the exact same age as relativity. It has an incredibly strong and beautiful culture, just different from the one that I was used to. And so some of the things that I wanted to bring to add to relativity, I didn't always integrate as thoughtfully as I could have. And uh, sometimes I need to just pause and, and listen and observe first and speak slower and speak less. Yeah. As you think back and it sounds like maybe the CEO gig like wasn't necessarily the dream job that you had. This was just an opportunity that presented itself that identified with the goals, values, mission, and actual work all kind of came together in a perfect storm. But let's assume you were planning for the CEO job. What are things that you would have done to better prepare yourself independent of vertical that you're joining, right? but better prepare yourself for the actual job. Yeah, so first is, you're right, I've actually told Jeff a number of times and others that there's no way I wanted to be a CEO. Looked like from my vantage point, reporting to him that it was no fun. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself a bit surprised when I had flipped into really wanting this job in particular. But you know, I think what I'd say for anyone who's thinking about making the jump to being a CEO, or frankly, I think the advice is the same for anyone thinking about the next layer up job, it's to speak to as many people as you can who are in that role that you desire and to have them unpack as many of their experiences as possible. And the reason for that for me, and this has been a core strategy in my professional development, is I really believe, you know, if you think about yourself as a hiring manager, and many hiring managers look for experience. Well, why do you look for experience? We look for experience because that's a proxy for your likelihood to have good judgment when faced with a decision or an execution point that needs to happen in the future. Past is often prelude. And so if you have experience, it can speed up your likelihood of making good decisions. Well, when you don't have experience, and anytime you move up in an organization, you don't have experience for that next role, how do you combat that area of ignorance? And so my strategy always has been pull from the people who've been in there, remember their stories like your own stories. I really try to intermingle my own memories with the memories of, of Jeff or of Dan or of Steve or of Peter, so many of the, the mentors who helped shape me so that I could call upon that and say, when I'm faced with a situation that I may be meeting for the first time, I can kind of flip through that memory bank of stories from other people and say, well, how did this person approach that and now I've got experience that wasn't mine the first time around, but it's become mine in where it sits in my mind. 
I keep going back to the way that you described the intimate details of life as a CEO. I find myself fascinated by that, just that idea. Are there any moments that Jeff shared that you remember that happened, that you had pattern recognition when they happened in your job where you're like, oh, <laughs> I remember that intimate detail. And maybe it was a moment of vulnerability. Maybe it was a moment of fear. Maybe it was a moment of jubilation or isolation. I don't know. The answer is yes. You know, as you mentioned, the intimate details, I am not one who asks for intimate details and then shares them broadly. Yeah. So with that in mind, I would say the answer is yes. And from everything from the routine of a day, when do you wake up? What do you do? When do you handle your email? How do you think about getting back to your family on time? How do you manage your board? How are you engaging with your customers? What do you think about your travel schedule? How do you work on the team dynamics of your team? Setting plans aspirationally, but with enough makeability in it so that folks don't despair that it's impossible. How do you find the edges on pushing without over pushing? I mean, there's so many, mm. there's literally probably hundreds of conversations that we had. And so there's some of the topics. I, I think, I, again, I'm not gonna maybe share the details of the answers, but those are the topics. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I wanted. I have, with the time that we have remaining, a bunch of things that you have written about, generally speaking, and also said, but that I read or heard, and I was like, oh, I, I, need Mike to, I need Mike to unpack that a little bit for me. Can we use the rest of the time for that? Is that okay? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Hit the ground running versus how far can you run? What do you mean by that? So that was something that I really spent some time thinking about with respect to hiring talent. I think oftentimes frontline managers especially, who are often held to shorter timeframes of execution requirements, are interviewing a pool of candidates and they're likely to pick the person who can hit the ground running, get out of the blocks fast, produce some work fast, as opposed to asking themselves, if this candidate is here for five years, like how far can she run? How far can this person go? Even if they're not the person who is the fastest out of the gates, they may require three or six months of investment. But if you make that investment, they can go even further than the other candidate who can get out of the gates fast. And so that became kind of a rallying cry for me, both in a strategy for trying to have more diverse hiring, where we don't just fall into the cycle of hiring the same kind of people who've been there and done that same thing before, but also about just for those hiring managers who are interested in ultimately being in executive jobs. And one of those things you have to think about as an aspiring leader is how do I go from thinking about you know, the day or the week or the sprint or the quarter to the year or the multi-year plan? And so talent decisions are part of that. And beginning to tune your eye and your ear to the people who can run furthest versus just those who can hit the ground running, I think is an important part of that. Using the word yet. Yeah, I personally think it's the most powerful short little word in the English language. This is part of Carol Dweck's growth mindset. This, for me, this, I got hit over the head by this sitting in a tiny little chair in my son's parent-teacher day in his classroom, hearing his teacher say it. But what I love about this, and I, when I hear this in the, in the mouth of my seven-year-old now, when she says she can't do something yet, I just smile because I can't play piano is so different from I can't play piano yet. Just the inclusion of that word at the end opens up the possibility for anything to happen. 
it opens up the possibilities for us to achieve anything aspirational. I haven't climbed a mountain yet. I haven't run a marathon yet. And it just absolutely opens up the world to us. So I think the more we can think about statements that end with yet, the better. Evaluating upside to downside with a three to one ratio as the framework to do so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, <laughs> that is a very clinical approach to dissecting one of LinkedIn's important tenets around taking intelligent risks. And the, the primary idea there is risk-taking we know is important in companies and in, I would argue in life, but how does one distinguish a risk that's a smart risk or an intelligent risk to make and a risk that is risky, but not necessarily a great idea. And so that's one of the components is just assessing the upside and downside, essentially making sure that it's worth it to go for it and that you may fail a few times, but the upside when you make it is big enough to make up for when you fail. The statement, I am here by choice. Mm. So I am here by choice. That's kind of a, for me, kind of like a powerful personal mantra. That's from my Dan Nye influenced days where I was born in a moment where the company was going through a transformation. This is pre-LinkedIn, this is Advent. And we were trying to execute on a strategy to encourage those folks who wanted to just be on the bus and help us restore the health and vigor to the company that we were trying to would be here. And those who were kind of complaining about, well, it's not what it used to be and it's just different, would just get off the bus. And so it started, it was about owning the agency we have in our lives to be wherever we want to be and to, if we choose to be there, let's be all in. And so for me, what it's turned into over the last 20 years is really this what started as an aspirational statement is now, I think, a very practical statement. I believe that I can be anywhere in the world I want to be today, doing almost anything I want to do with almost anyone. And I chose to be in Chicago today. I chose to make time in my calendar to engage even with this conversation with you today. And I try to exert my agency over my time in all of my days. And as a result of that, I'm freaking delighted to be doing whatever I'm doing because it's one the competition for my time in that moment against all the other things I could be doing. So I'm here by choice for me is to rally and cry, to take control over our time and our life, and to make sure that we are delighted to be doing whatever we're doing. And if we're not, go do something else. Yeah, I just got goosebumps. You crowdsourced years ago the top 100 leadership traits that people identify with or what they think leadership is. I pulled three. And I just want you to articulate or expand on those three. And I know we're doing rapid fire, but you know, I had to. Number one leadership trait, a combination of vision and execution is ideal. Yeah. So this was later, I think, articulated by Jeff really well as you have to be able to dream big, but you have to also be able to get shit done. And if you're just a dreamer, that's a great start, but without the execution, you can't manifest it it's not gonna turn in anything. So you have to dream big and then you really have to be able to get things done. I had the CRO of Stripe on recently, Mike Clavel, formerly of AWS. And we were talking about prospecting. He prospects every day still to this day. And I was like, Mike, you're still that tactical. And he said, you know, Jubin, Jeff had this great thing where he firmly believed that strategy is informed by tactics. This kind of reminded me of that with the vision and execution. Okay, second one. Investing in others creates massive organizational value. Yeah, I think that's in recognition of the fact that 
no single person in a modern corporation at any kind of scale can be the difference maker based on his or her own work. You really make organizational impact when you can scale across people and help them achieve more. So if we're not investing across our teams, we are not, in my opinion, really able to manifest the full potential that all the people we work so hard to bring on board can actually achieve. Last one on this. Leading from the front is highly motivational. What does that look like in practice? Gosh, I think we're all inspired by people who just roll up their sleeves and get in there and get it done. You know, I think there may have been a time generations ago where a leader got to stay up in, the, in an ivory tower and bark out commands and people did stuff, I guess. Today, I feel like we're all working hard in whatever our roles are to serve our customers in some way, to serve each other as teammates. And so if you're in sales, throwing on a headset and getting in there and doing some prospecting, I think that's a great move. If you're in engineering, just like sitting down in a, with one of the sprint teams and getting you know, deeply into what they're joining them at the whiteboard. Sometimes it's about just getting in there and just doing the work. And I think all people are inspired by a feeling of accessibility and camaraderie that comes from knowing we're all in this together. Last one. And it's on creating work-life harmony. I thought this was an appropriate place to end. One of the things that you say in this article is that you identify and eliminate the things that really frustrate you. The example that you gave in the article was that you no longer took flights on Fridays because there was a frustration point for you and your family where there were social events, opportunities for you to spend time with your wife and kids that would often happen on a Friday. And if you were traveling on a Friday, things would inevitably come up, whether you're flying into O'Hare, so we know how that goes. And so you just avoided that by only traveling Monday through Thursday. I just thought that was so cool. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Relativity is very fortunate to have two world-class investors, Iconic and Silver Lake. And Silver Lake recently went through a diagnostic with us that they call their current reality tree, which is a way of looking at a situation and linking the causal relationships of things that move upstream that create blockers for what you're trying to achieve. If you kind of picture that for a moment, you come back to feeling like you are living your best life and, and kind of work in personal life harmony. I was interested in doing that. I wanted to go upstream of the things that really caused a lot of problem for me in my personal life. And at the time I was traveling a ton, you can't control air travel timing, but what you can control to some degree is when you are disrupted by that. What we found out in our family was if I come home really late on a Tuesday night, you know, it's annoying, but it's not devastating. If I come home really late on a Friday night, it kind of screws up the whole weekend. And so, well, just don't schedule those things on Fridays if you can avoid it. I'm not perfect that way, but 90 some odd percent of the time, that's the way it happened. And so if I was using my today skills for writing that article, I would definitely borrow from some of the Silver Lake teachings there. And I would probably map out all the things that caused me to feel out of harmony and then trace them back up the tree to their causal driver and really just try to root them out. And that's what I've been trying to do over the last 10 years or so. And I, you know, I'm very grateful number one, to, and feel privileged to be in a position where I can assert such agency over my time, but also grateful for having just gone through the exercise. I think everyone has more ability to assert themselves on their time and on the things that bring them pleasure or discomfort than they often give themselves credit for. And so really sometimes just starting to do that, you find what you're capable of. Speaking of time, I got to get you out of here. What does the word grit mean to you? For me, grit is really about the resolve to just stay after it. 
Sometimes we have a goal and it's really challenging to pursue and it gets hard. The folks who really manifest grit, they're just staying after it. They keep their shoulder on it and they just keep pushing. What's the best way to get a hold of you if you're hiring? Are there any key roles that you're hiring for? What are you hiring for, et cetera? Yes. So if we don't know each other, find me on LinkedIn. If we do, you've got my number. I only have one phone number. And I would say, yeah, Relativity is hiring for all kinds of roles, hundreds of roles around the world, from technical to sales to talent, finance, operations, kind of the whole deal. So check us out and we'd love to meet you. Mike, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been really appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.